0: Well, this is the part of our time together where we're going to read from the Bible. And so if you've got a Bible with you, now is the moment to produce it, either on your phone or um, the book version. That'd be fantastic. I was thinking the other day, do you know, like the news changes every day, um, the advice changes every day, my emotions change several times a day, and yet the truths that are in this book are timeless and they never change. And even more amazingly than that, whenever we open this book, God meets us in these pages. And so I just want to commend it to you. If you've never read the Bible before, start now. You, I've never met anyone, I don't know whether you have, I've never met anyone who regrets having read the Bible. <laughs> yeah, So True. we True. commend it to you. So we're doing a, a series called The Prison Letters, looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is in the New Testament. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, because that's where we were last week. Um, And just while you're swiping or tapping to Philippians chapter 2, let me just remind you about the context. So the Apostle Paul is in lockdown, in prison, and uh, he is longing to visit his friends who are in Philippi. and he's heard that there's been a relational breakdown and there's a kind of a a relational mess over amongst his friends, he wishes that he could go and visit them and help them to solve that, but he can't. And so instead he has to write this letter. And so we're gonna read from Philippians chapter two, verse three onwards because Taryn finished up brilliantly. Such a great talk last week, you haven't heard it, download it or listen to it. Uh, She did up to verse two. So he says this, do nothing to the glory of God the Father. That's our text for today, and we'll pick up further on next week. I remember my first day at school, and the reason I remember it is because it was the moment I discovered that not everything I've ever created is a work of art. <laughs> um, you know, like when you're a, a tiny little kid, you're creating things with, you know, paper and uh, pencils and, and crayons or whatever, And, you know, people just coo at it. You know, I remember you just do a little picture and and somebody at home is delighted and excited that you've done that, um, which was great. And then you get to school and suddenly you're getting ticks for some things, but then you're getting big, red, horrible crosses next to other things, which is just like traumatic. I mean, some people would say I've never really recovered from, (laughs) you know, getting those big red crosses until we got to Mrs. Johnson's class. And Mrs. Johnson, looking back now, was just one of those people who was just so unbelievably encouraging and lovely and kind. She couldn't bring herself to write a cross next to anything. And so instead of writing a cross, she used to write a question mark. And so uh, I remember the, the like the first week in her class, she sent us home to do some work at home. And we came back the next day, we brought the work that we'd done, and there were like some ticks and then some question marks. And we were like, miss, what, what is this? And she said, uh, oh, that's a question mark. It means think again. I th- believe actually with all my heart that this crisis, amongst many other things, is providing for us an opportunity to think again. You know, I've heard people talking about when, when we go back to the way things were, listen, we're not going back to the way things were. We, we are entering a new phase, a new, a new moment together as a society and as a church. And so um, actually we have an opportunity now. We don't have to take everything that was in our life back then into the life that we are entering into. And uh, so it's a really good moment to think again about our attitudes, our motives, the things that are driving us, the things that we're living for. Do some work on our inner world. I love in that passage that the Apostle Paul is talking all about our thinking. He's encouraging them to to change their thinking. So for example, in verse five, he's talking about, he's encouraging them to change their mindset. In verse six, he's talking about reconsidering things. And um, in particular, what he's urging them to, to stop and to consider is not what's happening out there, But what's happening in here, he's urging them to consider their inner life, their inner monologue, their inner thoughts, their inner world. And uh, ultimately the truth that he's wanting to communicate to them is this. Uh, The truth is the reasons we live shape the relationships that we have that shapes the reality that we experience. Let me just say that again. He's trying to convey to them the reasons we live shape the relationships that we have, that shapes the reality that we experience. In other words, what he's talking about when he's addressing this relational mess, is, is he's kind of saying, do you know what, um, uh, you, you are in a relational mess. And that relational mess is impacting your effectiveness on your mission. The impact that you're having on the world is being diminished and compromised because you're not practicing what you're preaching. But let's look, rather than looking at all of that, let's look at your inner world. Because the motives and the thinking and the attitudes that you have right at the core of who you are are what is ultimately leading to your broken relationships and your lack of effectiveness. And so he's encouraging them to do some inner work, a bit like Mrs. Johnson. He is saying, hey listen, think again. And uh, I just think he's he's ultimately pointing to two different things that he wants them to... Uh, the Two different bits of homework that he wants them to do on their inner life, and the first one is this. He wants them to live with the right motives. Um, uh, he wants them to really look at what is it that's driving them, and and he gives them a range of options, right? So in verse three, first of all, he says option one: do nothing out of selfish ambition. The word that, that I don't know whether you know this, but the the. The Bible that we have that's in English was originally in other languages and the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And the Greek word that is translated as selfish ambition is a word that was originally used to describe um, a day labourer. So someone who did a day's work and got a day's pay for their their work. And you say, well that sounds pretty positive, and it was. But over time the use of that word Uh, kind of changed and became something more negative. So by the time of Aristotle, Aristotle uses it to describe a kind of self-seeking, self-serving politician, a greedy politician, who instead of carrying out all of their activities for the good of society, you know, with noble and altruistic motivations and, and, you know, like uh, you just wanna do something good for the world, and for the people you serve. Instead of that, you're just in it for yourself. You're in it for the tr- for the uh, the prestige and the status and the power and, and the money. You're a mercenary. And here is Paul saying, don't be a mercenary in the way that you live. I think it's a powerful challenge. It's a powerful question um, to ask ourselves. You know, like he's basically saying in the way that you relate to one another, in the work that you do, what is your motivation, and choose to make sure that your motivation is not, what do I get out of it, you know, uh, what's in it for me? That's a terrible motivation, and and ultimately it's a very destructive motivation to our relationships and our impact on the world. So option number one, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition, then he says, but neither do anything out of vain conceit. The word, the Greek word there is kenodoxia. It means literally empty glory. Don't do anything for empty applause. You know, when you're a kid, again, you know, initially the stuff that you do is greeted with applause. And it turns out that we really like applause and it makes us feel good. So, you know, little toddler runs across the room for the first time and everyone's so delighted and excited and just cheering them on. And then, you know, look, look what I can do. I've brought a recorder home from school and I'm gonna torture you with this, but we all applaud you. And it's like, oh, that feels really, really great. Look, granny, I'm drawing a massive fat round circle and I'm drawing a picture of you. Oh, I'm so delighted. That's so brilliant that you've, (laughs) Done that, and so we love applause. And let's be honest, you know, we all need encouragement. We all need reassurance. We all need people in our lives who will cheer us up and cheer us on. But it's a terrible motive to live for. You know, um, that need, that drive for recognition or that need, that drive for approval again an incredibly destructive power and so we should ask ourselves to what degree am i living for the applause of others in an unhealthy way um, and then there's this third option which is really the only option the best option which is to serve the interests of others verse three and a half he says in humility value others above yourselves now he's not saying you know, they're worth more. He's just saying you know, that their, their needs, their, their hopes, their dreams, you know, consider those above your own hopes and your own dreams. And then he it goes on to explain that, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, gosh, what a simple yet immense piece of teaching. That if we would, wherever we are, and whoever we find ourselves with, if we were to say, "How? what are the needs of these people and how could I serve them? What a powerful piece of teaching. You know that, that I might be a, a project manager in the oil industry, I might work in a cinema or a supermarket or a shop, I might be a nurse or a doctor, but if in every situation my inner motive, the drive that is within me was I am gonna look for people to serve. I'm gonna assume that the people who are around me right now, God has put in my life for me to serve their needs and their interests. That's a beautiful thing. And that doesn't destroy relationships like the previous two, that builds relationships. It makes everything sweet and ultimately increases our influence and our impact in the world. So that's the first thing, live for the right motives. Number two, love the right king. Uh, In these days of like, hashtag be kind, you know, the idea of servant leadership is really familiar to many of us, that you know, most of us would expect from our leaders, people who are kind and compassionate and genuine and authentic and real, that's what we're expecting, but that concept of a leader was utterly alien to the ancient world. The ancient world was ruled over by emperors and kings whose primary motivation was to uh, come across as as impressive as possible, right? And so, and so you know, if you're an emperor or, or a king, you're going to collect wealth and trinkets as a demonstration, as a symbol of your authority and your power. And you see that, if you think about it, you stop and think about it for a moment, as I was uh, just the other day when I was writing this talk, I was thinking, gosh, think, you know, you got one guy building the giant pyramids, you know, and somebody else building the... Uh, temple of Artemis in Ephesus, somebody else building the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You know, they're all building these enormous expressions of their um, persona, trying to make everyone know that they're really magnificent and, you know, uh, big. And and ultimately that that kind of worked its way down through society. Everyone was trying to do that because they were all fixing their eyes on those kings and emperors. And so I understand how you get on in the world, right? You you try and uh, blow yourself up like a puffer fish and just hope that you can stay there long enough for people to be impressed. Um, uh, and that was the culture that everyone was living in. Um, it's like go big or go home. Um, and uh, that culture, that way of life was just like the soup that everyone was swimming in. It was like, this is this is how you behave, you just have to construct an artifice, a a persona that is impressive to everyone else. And Paul's diagnosis is that all of the dysfunction and the disunity that they are experiencing in their relationships in Philippi, ultimately has at its root this sense of people just not being real, not being authentic, trying to make themselves seem more impressive than they really are. They've got their eyes on the wrong kings and the wrong emperors. And so what he does is so beautiful, he reminds them of a hymn, a a worship song that that many scholars believe was one of the first worship songs, one of the first hymns in the early church. And uh, that's why if you look at your Bibles, you'll see that verses 6 to 11 are written a bit like a poem. It's because uh, it, it seems like it was a song. And it's a worship song that is adoring, is worshipping an entirely different kind of king. He's the king who didn't consider power and status and authority something to be grasped, but instead laid aside, emptied himself of his glory and his majesty and his wealth, and made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness. He became, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And he's reminding them, this is what you're singing. I just find that so beautiful, so powerful. If you can imagine that everyone else across the ancient world has their eyes fixed on false um, status and authority and power. And yet there are believers hidden away in upper rooms and private corners who are bowing the knee and worshipping the most powerful king who has ever been, who actually is the emperor of all creation, but who walked among us as a servant. And what he's saying is, his encouragement is, your mindset should be exactly like his. You're released from your need to construct a persona. You can choose servanthood. You can choose to be like Jesus. And I I remember speaking to a guy who was a social worker, and I I mean, such a tough job, tough environment, just dealing with really, really rough stuff every day. And he was, he was just a bit confused, this guy. He said, there's a Christian in my office. And he said, it, what he does, this Christian is, he comes into the office early, every weekday morning, and he sits at his desk, and he opens up his Bible, and he just reads the scriptures, and then he gets on with his day. And this guy just couldn't get it. He was like, what on earth does he think he's doing? And I was thinking to myself, I know exactly what he's doing. (laughs) This is self-preservation. Yeah. This is, he's fixing his eyes on the true king. He's recalibrating his heart. He's choosing servanthood. He's choosing to lay down falsehood. He's choosing to not live for selfish ambition or empty applause. He's choosing to be like Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, is what Paul says. So here we are in this moment of crisis, which is providing an opportunity for us to think again. And let's do the work. Let's, let's look not only out the way, but in the way and start to consider what actually do I want my inner motives and drives to be moving forwards. Let's pray, Sheree. And Lord, the soup that we're swimming in, the, the culture that we live in, is easily impressed by... Um, pretense but our decision, our choice today is to live a different kind of way to, to live with a different inner life to, to strive towards becoming more like Jesus and, and living the way that he lived among us And so we pray that you'd help us show us the way Lord, as we look inwards and reflect and think again on our own hearts and our own souls, Lord, please would you help us, by your Spirit, guide us on that inner journey and help us to be different and to live differently from now on. Amen. Amen. Amen.